Um, so we're kicking off our series in 1 Samuel. So if you have a Bible or the internet, pull up the Bible um, and turn to 1 Samuel. We're going to be in chapter 1 today. And we're kicking off, man. We're kicking off into the book of 1 Samuel. And this is going to take us all the way through June. And I'm really pumped, man, to start figuring this out uh, together, what it looks like. If you, if you weren't here last week, I sat down with Aaron Etheridge and basically did pretty much a live podcast, in essence, and, and asked him a lot of questions about how to read Scripture, the ways that Westerners tend to approach Scripture, and where that can be actually more of an obstacle than it can be helpful, how to read historical narrative like First Samuel. So if you missed that conversation, Check out Ethos Church podcast on Spotify or Apple. Search Ethos Church, Hillsborough Village. You'll find it there, a discussion with Aaron Etheridge. Make sure you hear that. That's gonna be important as we dig into 1 Samuel um, because there's gonna be weeks a lot like this one where I'm not gonna preach a sermon as much as I'm just gonna kind of talk through a passage and then I'm gonna let you process because what I, I'm kind of wrestling. I'm walking a line between preaching sermons and helping us Bible study. And I haven't quite found my footing, but a goal of mine is to help us as believers mature in how we read the Bible, in how we read a passage and reflect on the passage. And I think a part of what I need to do is almost pull back a little bit on the sermon points that inspire you and instead kind of talk through some, it's okay, it's just a light, we're all right, it's gonna keep blinking, just like a, getting your picture taken. Um, a part of, yeah, um, a part of what I feel tasked with for this church family is less to give you sermons to be excited about and more to equip you in your time, of the, in, your time in the word, both on Sundays, but also throughout the week. So I wanna invite you to lean in and, and to be open for a different way of this portion of the worship gathering. It might feel a little different week to week. I would also encourage um, in your personal life, supplement this type of Bible study with prayer, with worship, with healthy community, with discipleship, with asking the Holy Spirit, what do you have for me today? How can I be obedient today? Um, because Bible reading isn't the only thing that helps our walk with God. Sermons certainly should not be the foundation of our walk with God. There's so many things that go into it. This is just a piece. All right, preface over. So today we're in 1 Samuel 1. Um, if you're taking notes, the title of this teaching is simply Hannah's Prayer. Hannah's prayer, okay? If you need a reminder about the things that kind of preceded this book, two weeks ago, we did a big overview of 1 Samuel, the main characters, the themes, some things that will happen. And so if you missed that one, again, go listen to that on the podcast. That'll be important. It'll help inform today a little bit. Um, so we're going to talk about Hannah today. She's an absolute icon. Um, she's incredible in this story. She's only in like two chapters, but if you've read the whole book of 1 Samuel, she's one of the ones you don't forget. Um, her story's pretty wild. Um, she gives birth to Samuel. So who this book is named after, Hannah is Samuel's mama. And that's who we're gonna focus on. All right. Um, so we're gonna look at chapter one, verses one through 18. Um, but I'm gonna read uh, in a few minutes, verses nine through 18. So I'm gonna start just by summarizing kind of walking you through verses one through eight. You can read verses one through eight as I'm talking if you want, um, but I'm just gonna kind of explain what all happens before we get to Hannah's prayer, okay? So there are three characters in verses one through eight that we get introduced to, all right? We have El, how do you say it? Elkanah? 
I think it's Elkanah is how you say it. I looked it up on YouTube, heard it, and I've already forgotten it. Um, I also named him Daddy Elk just to be funny uh, and just to kind of engage your brain in some different ways. Um, So we got Daddy Elk, Elkanah. Um, He's a husband to two wives, all right? Um, Of the two wives, one has children and one is barren, all right? Um, having two wives isn't even permissible in God's law, but this was, this was actually kind of commonplace when a woman would be barren. Uh, the husband would have another wife to grow that family tree. Um, so one wife's name is Panina. I think it's how you pronounce it. Um, she's the one that has sons and daughters. Penny, yeah, we can call her Penny, Lady Penny. Um, so uh, that's the one that has sons and daughters. And then we have Hannah. She's the one who is barren, all right? So immediately we're introduced we got Elkanah, who is the husband. We got Penina, the, the wife with children. And then we have Hannah, who is barren. And if you're familiar with Genesis chapter 16, the story of Abraham, um, Sarah, and Hagar, uh, there's actually a, a pretty good parallel here. So in Genesis 16, Abraham, the one that God has promised, you will have many descendants. The nation of Israel will come through you. And he promises that Abraham and Sarah, although they are old in age, they will have kids. And Sarah is barren. She's convinced in my old age, that's impossible. Abraham goes, I agree with you. And so they take it in their own hands. Abraham sleeps with Hagar. She has a son named Ishmael. Well, eventually God does the miracle he promised. Abraham and Sarah actually have a child and his name's Isaac. And from that line, we get the nation of Israel Where the story is a little different, Abraham and Sarah get a promise from the Lord and in their lack of faith, disobey. Hannah has received no such promise, but her faith is stronger. She's going to end up praying to God, give me a son that hasn't even been promised to me, but I want one and I love you and we'll get to there. So in verse three, we learn um, that this family unit, this kind of awkward family unit of a husband and two wives, Um, They take these annual trips to a place called Shiloh. There's a place of worship, a temple, tabernacle, and they go to sacrifice to the Lord as their their faith requires of them. And Elkanah would, Elkanah, I I don't know, y'all, just grace to me. Elkanah would take part of the meat from his annual sacrifice and give it to his family. He would give some portion to Panina and her children, and he would give double portion to Hannah because he felt really bad for her. He was sad that she couldn't have children. He knew that her heart was broken. Um, Elkanah and Panina would respond to Hannah's suffering in very different ways. So the husband would be very gracious and sad and check in on her mental and emotional well-being. While as Panina was kind of this the jealous wife. In verse six, if you read that, it says that she would like mock Hannah in her barren state. She would make fun of her for not being able to have children, which is awful, obviously. But as I thought about it, I thought, well, if you got two wives and one husband, maybe there was some room for jealousy and rivalry. And rivalry is the word used in this text. And so there's this really ugly, kind of evil, vindictive spirit in Panina. And she reminds Hannah all the time, like, you're cursed. You, you can't have kids. I can. And I think that was probably her way of feeling closer to her husband than than maybe than Hannah. So she was kind of always this salt in the wound type character to Hannah. Whereas Elkanah is both very caring 
and also low-key a little careless. So he loves Hannah deeply, and man, he really kind of messes up. In verse eight, he's like, hey, I know you're broken. I know you're downtrodden, you're barren, but is not my love for you worth more than 10 sons? And that's where you're like, romantic, totally missing it, right? Like, that's sweet. I'm glad you love Hannah so much, but he seems to totally miss what it does to Hannah that she cannot have children. So he's trying his best. I think he's a loving and admirable husband in that way. Um, He provides for her. He expresses his love for her. But even he can't understand the heart that Hannah is carrying on a daily basis. This, This, she's like already a mother, even though she has no children yet. And so that's kind of the backdrop. They're taking these annual trips to the temple and tabernacle, making sacrifices. And now we get to Hannah in Shiloh, at the temple, and she makes a big decision. She chooses to go to the temple and pray to the Lord, and she's gonna make a really bold prayer. She's going to enter the temple courts and be very honest and pray for a son. She's praying for a son because a son would carry on the family name. There was also a promise that through a son would come the savior of Israel. And so there was this like, man, what if I have the son that, that leads Israel to salvation? And so it was in that culture of value to not just have a, a child, but to have a son specifically. And so she goes and begins praying. I'm, I'm asking God for a son. And in verses nine through 18, I'm gonna read that. And then I wanna, I wanna kind of break down four things I noticed there. And then I'm gonna lead us into some reflection on our own to see what God might be doing in 1 Samuel 1, nine through 18. All right, so we're in Shiloh. We just ate a little, they just ate a little bit of the, the meat that was sacrificed. It says, after they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. And Hannah was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life. Kind of like that child dedication we just did. And no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, but only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, no, my Lord, I'm a woman troubled in spirit. I've drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I've been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Don't regard your servant as a worthless woman for all along I've been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. And then Eli answered, go in peace and the God of Israel grant your petition that you've made to him. And she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. And then the woman went her way and ate and her face was no longer sad. All right, Holy Spirit lead us through this conversation. So I've got four points that I'm gonna visit somewhat briefly And I'm just gonna invite us to reflect on it and see what we notice, maybe even see what God might be bringing up in our own hearts. But we have a pretty interesting moment. Hannah 
in the temple praying. And the first thing I want to talk about is the ugly cry prayer. So she's ugly crying big time. This is not a, um, a well-manicured moment for her. She's not wiping away her tears, shoving her emotions deep down in her heart in order to say a well-crafted, well-articulated prayer. She's bringing the most raw version of herself into the holiest place. If you jump ahead to verses 12 through 18, it tells us that conversation that she has with Eli. And I, I wanna invite you to picture this, to not just let them be words on a page, but picture what this might've looked like. She's praying so fervently with such intensity that a priest, a guy who sees people pray all the time, it's a part of his job to just see people praying in the temple, right? She's praying with such intensity that he goes, that woman is drunk. Like, there's such a like quiet intensity. What I picture is her like kind of on her knees, rocking back and forth, eyes closed, maybe even sweating on her forehead. And just like her lips are just moving, but no sound is happening. It's this really intense, just, and you can just tell there's this heavy concentration. And I want to walk a fine line between preaching about why that's so important and so powerful versus kind of letting you process that. But I'll just say this, take note of how vulnerable and how real Hannah is willing to be in the holiest place. Like before God, in his holy presence, she is being as raw and as vulnerable as she can be. And I don't know what your prayer life looks like, but for the longest time for me, my prayer life tended to be a few levels above that vulnerability. Like I had my thoughts, I had my frustrations, I had my desperations that I would kind of leave in the corner of my mind when it came time to talk to the Lord. There was a level of honesty, of vulnerability. I would not allow myself to go when in God's presence. I don't know if anyone else struggles with that. If you feel like you have to sound a certain way, maybe you grew up in a tradition and you heard people pray certain ways and that trickled into your prayer life for better and for worse. And so you've taught yourself that you can only talk to God in certain ways. But what we see from Hannah here is I feel like we're getting the truest version of herself before the Lord. I feel like her husband didn't even get that version of herself. Only God got this version of Hannah. That's what I feel. That may not be true. It seems true to me. All right. So that's one. Ugly cry prayer. Number two, another thing I noticed in Hannah. There is a humble posture in Hannah that is so remarkable she refers to herself over and over again as a what? What does she keep calling herself when she's praying? A servant. There is such a humility and an, an implied obedience in that word. Who can remember one of the main themes of 1 Samuel? That God draws near to the... I wish you could have heard what I just heard. That's what I heard. God draws near to the humble and the obedient. Pay attention to that theme. In her urgency, with her broken heart, it does not lead her away from reality. There's a very important reality that actually supersedes her desires. And that is the dynamic between her and God. As sad as her situation is, as desperate as she is, there is still a reality. She is a human approaching the Almighty. 
the sovereign Lord, all-powerful, all-knowing, the God that was, that is, and that will always be. And she does not lose sight of who she's talking to. And in her humility, calls herself a servant because he 100% deserves reverence. She understands that no matter how she's feeling, no human is just entitled to get their way before the Lord just because they really want it. And it even feels like a pure and good and noble desire. No one would call a mother wanting a son sinful. She's not in sin here, but she also understands she's not entitled to that. And in this state, in this desperate state, you don't see that she's entitled, mean-spirited, seeking vengeance on the Lord. And I wanna just point out how much strength you have to have to maintain that level of humility while being that desperate before the Lord. I was reminded of this rap song that I love, and one of the lyrics is, if you think, we, uh, if you think um, being meek is being weak, try being meek for a week. And it sounds really good on the song. It sounds terrible when I say it out loud, of course. That's how most rap is anyway, you know? But there's this reality. Humility, meekness, gentleness, it looks weak, doesn't it? It looks fragile. We can live in a world where it's like whoever can yell the loudest. But have you ever tried to listen first for more than a day? Have you ever tried to withhold anger? You ever felt just how hard it is to hold back the immature little human inside of you that wants to yell, that wants to be prideful, that wants to be entitled? Restraining that, learning to be mature, learning to submit, learning to be humble, that is strength. And I think sometimes, maybe it's just me, but I can, I can make synonymous humble and like timid. What I see in Hannah is a humility that is a strength I've yet to get to. There's so much strength in her willingness to submit to the Lord in her desperation, in her prayer request. That's number two. Number three, she makes a bold petition. She prays and asks for a miracle. She says, give your servant a son. So in the presence of God, she's not afraid to be very vulnerable. And on this side of the prayer, to be super risky. You know, spoiler alert, she ends up having a son. So it's like, okay, cool. Like, of course that prayer is admirable. She has a son. But on this side of the prayer, there is no guarantee. In her heart, she is praying a prayer that is risky. She's showing this mother's love before she's even, even a mother and doesn't even have the guarantee of being one. Abraham and Sarah were promised a child. She had no such promise. But she trusts God beyond her logic she trusts God beyond her experience. She trusts God beyond Panina's mocking. There is a deep trust that cannot be moved that God can. She's just asking if God will, but she knows God can. But now God, will you do this? Again, a great strength being displayed in her spirit. And I sense there's also such a trust in the character of God. She trusts God so much, I don't sense that her faith is on the line. Sometimes when you pray the boldest prayers, at least in my experience, I can kind of wager my faith with it. Like if I'm gonna pray for something big, I'm also gonna put my faith on the line because I'm scared. So if it don't work, maybe I'm making all this up. I don't know if you've ever done that, but sometimes when I pray big, I'm like, if you don't come through here, I'm gonna feel shame about how risky my prayer was and I might just like turn away for a little bit. All right, maybe I'm done praying for a while. 
But I don't get this sense with Hannah. I get this sense that she's boldly asking from a God, knowing he can do it. And even if he doesn't, she will remain the humble servant she currently is. There's nothing on the line for her faith in the Lord. There's nothing on the line for her servanthood and her submission to the will of God as she makes bold requests for the Lord. Son or no son, the answer she wants or the answer she doesn't want, no matter what, she's gonna stay humble before the Lord, his servant. All right, number four. Then she makes a faithful promise. In verse 11, she says, give to your servant a son and then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life. So she says, give him to me and I will give him right back. There's a reciprocal prayer. It's kind of crazy. You want a son so bad and then right when you get him, you're willing to give him back. It's a remarkable thing here. And I was reading from a guy named Robert Alter and he says this of the prayer. Hannah's prayer exhibits directness of style without ornament or conventional liturgical phrasing and almost a naive simplicity. If you give him to me, I'll give him to you. To the glory of God is another way of hearing that part of the prayer. If you give me a son, he will be, you, he will be yours to the glory of God. Even in him granting her request, she understands this is still about you, O Lord. This thing that's on my heart that I want, I, I'm a mom without a child, like give me this child. And even if you do, Lord, he is yours and I will give him to you all the days of his life. Now that's significant because she's making what's called like a Nazarite vow. When she says no razor will touch his head. I don't wanna to go too deep into this, but she's reinforcing the way in which she will dedicate her son there's a guy named Samson in the book of Judges. He has really long hair and he's super strong until he gets his hair cut. He's a Nazarite. He's in a Nazarite vow. There's certain things that they withhold in their life. They don't consume alcohol. They don't get their hair cut. But in that vow, there's a certain time period in which you're dedicated to the temple and to the Lord. When Hannah says, I'll give him to you for all the days of his life, she's actually going beyond what would be traditionally even required of a son being dedicated to the temple. She's saying, I'm gonna give him back to you and then more. You can have him not just for a time period in his life, but for all of his entire life. If I have my way, he is called to ministry from birth until death to the glory of God. Not gonna preach, reflect on that. Really powerful stuff there. Her character is incredible here. So it's one thing to pray and ask. It's one thing to approach God with requests on our hearts, but it's another thing to pray with Hannah's level of vulnerability, humility, boldness, selflessness, and with the glory of God in mind. It's remarkable what we see from Hannah. And so to conclude this conversation, bear with me. We're gonna try something out today and I'll see how it feels and if it doesn't feel right, we'll make some adjustments. Maybe next week we're back to just preaching sermons and just sending you to communion like normal. But I wanna try this out. I've got four, I think it's four questions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I got four questions on the screen. And I actually wanna invite you now to have your Bibles out and on your own to just reflect on one, two, three, or all four if you have time of these questions. And even spend some time with God, okay, we spent the first 15, 20 minutes learning some facts about Hannah, noticing some things about Hannah's character. But let's take it deeper. Pull out a pen and paper. 
Pull out your phone and the notes app. Reflect on these questions. Maybe begin meditating. What am I noticing? And then just like kind of talk, have an open conversation with God about it. All right, God, here's what I'm noticing in this story. Maybe you notice something you admire about Hannah. Maybe there's something Hannah's doing so well that you're like, man, that's so far from like who I am or how I operate. Lord, is there a way that I can even kind of inch toward Hannah's character here? But for the next five or six minutes, we're gonna play some soft music and I'm gonna invite you to search the scriptures, read back over this passage, reflect on these questions, and maybe just spend some time with the Lord going, okay, what's some things I'm learning about Hannah? What's some things I'm learning about God? What's some things I'm learning about this text? So we'll do this for five to six minutes, and then I'll transition us to, uh, to communion and, and worship.